Well, my name is Mike McNichols. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you tonight. And this weekend marks the beginning of the season of Epiphany, as you probably know. And it's when the church moves from the seasons of Advent and Christmas and, and looks anew at the church's mission in the world. And Epiphany, I, I like the word Epiphany because it's kind of a mysterious word. Uh, it suggests something being revealed that wasn't apparent before, something that seems new but was really there all the time. And mystery is a good word that describes some of our scriptures that were read tonight. There appears to be something mysterious, we're told, that God is doing, and by human reckoning, it's both joyous and puzzling in nature, all at the same time. For example, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, the text we heard tonight, the chapter right before that has Isaiah speaking to the dispersed people of Israel who are languishing in exile, recognizing their own rebellion against God. They understand how it is that they got there. And then Isaiah starts speaking about God's judgment against Israel's enemies, the very people that have drawn them into exile, and, and speaks of a redeemer yet to come who will rescue Israel from their, rescue, uh, their exile. But even hearing about how God's justice will be meted out to Israel's enemies, the nations that have oppressed them, this very astounding statement is made by the prophet. He says, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now, while the words are hopeful, you would think they would be just a little bit puzzling to the ancient people of Israel as, as they would consider that, that somehow they're being told that they're gonna be rescued from their enemies and then they're gonna become a great light. But in that being a great light, they're gonna draw the very nations that have oppressed them right to their brightness. And when that light came to Israel, ultimately, it came in a way that people just didn't expect. It wasn't what they were anticipating at all. Rather than emerging in the very glory of Jerusalem, this light shone in a stable in Bethlehem. And even the magi, the, the wise men that we heard about tonight, they made that mistake. They very logically went to Jerusalem after sorting things out with the stars, thinking, well, where else would the Jewish Messiah show up except in the capital? Uh, but they were wrong, and they were directed to Bethlehem. And uh, when they finally arrived there, they knew they'd found the real thing. You know, when you read the Magi, the story of the wise men, it's really easy to kind of marginalize them to the story. But, but they're not incidental to the story of Jesus in Matthew's account, the only place that they appear in the Gospels. They aren't just slick wi window dressing to kind of you know, dress up a, a rather humble birth narrative. They're right at the heart of the story because they are the very first to demonstrate in, in that narrative about Jesus, God's very intentions for the world. They, they provide in Matthew's gospel the, the first hint of God's very expansive, grand mission in the world. Now, most of us, if you've done any you know, reading about this in the past, you understand that, that most scholars would say that these wise men weren't, weren't Jewish wise men, not Jewish astrologers. In fact, that kind of ran counter, ran counter to their whole religious ethic. Uh, they were very likely from, from Babylon or Persia, nations corresponding roughly to present-day Iraq and Iran. They were maybe astrologers, maybe magicians, maybe sages, maybe all of the above. We don't really know for sure, except they did read the stars. And, and how much they really, really understood about Jesus, we don't know, never will know. But they knew enough when they arrived 
to get on their knees in expressions of honor, postures that we could very easily interpret as worship. Now let's think about this a second. This child, this, this child Jesus is born in this backwater village in Israel and an entourage of foreign astrologers show up in search of him. And when they arrive, they give him very expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, worth a lot of money, uh, and then they bow and worship. Now, outside of a few shepherds, these guys are really the only ones whose attention was caught by the birth of this child. It seemed to miss everybody else. Even Herod wasn't really catching on. He was tipped off by the Magi themselves. This week, as I was actually making notes for this weekend, as I was working, this little email box popped up as it does to alert me that something very important has come in once in a while. But this one was a post on the CNN belief blog that I subscribe to because it's got really interesting stories about religious stuff. And um, the title of it really caught my attention, particularly since I was thinking about our topic for tonight. And the title of the article was, Iranians Seek Relief in Christmas Celebrations. Did you catch that? Iranians seek relief. Iranians, you know who those good folks are. Um, Christmas, not typically a big thing for them, one would think. And here's how the article opened up, just the beginning of it. Gold, red, and green gift boxes decorated a large Christmas tree in a popular food court in the Islamic Republic's bustling capital of Tehran. Nativity scenes of Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus added color to the windows of shops across this lively city, a small symbol of the growing number of Iranians embracing the Christian holiday. Iran has a population that is 98% Muslim, and the government is widely recognized for its repressive rulings, censorship, and efforts to cut ties with the United States and the West. But more Iranians are openly celebrating Christmas and expressing their desires to be part of the global celebration. On Christmas, President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, are you impressed that I could say that? <laughs> but only once. <clears throat> he released a statement praising Jesus as the messenger of humanism and grace and noted, I believe that the sole way to save man from severe moral, social, and cultural crises is returning to the exalted teachings of the great messengers of God. I'm just telling you what I read on the news. I'm not making this stuff up. Well, the article does go on to say that, that while there's, there's plenty of religious oppression in Iran still, and that Christians form a very small minority in that nation, primarily Armenian Christians, that Muslims, Iranian Muslims, are increasingly celebrating Christmas, even though the bulk of them would say that they're celebrating it in kind of a non-religious way, maybe the way we in the United States would celebrate you know, Halloween or St. Patrick's Day or, or, or something like that. But one observer said that the Christmas celebration brings to them a sense of joy and happiness that they feel is absent in their culture because of the kind of heavy legalism that they've got to deal with. Muslims celebrating Christmas in Iran. Now that's a mystery. You know, the Apostle Paul is the one who eventually started making sense of this, some magnetism to the Gentiles that we see emerging in our scriptures. And Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ. And then he defines what he means by that. And he says the mystery is that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul sees his own mission, he says, as bringing news of the boundless riches of Christ. And to bring that, those riches, that news, 
to the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people, the nations. So he uses the word boundless. Really? Boundless? Maybe reckless. Maybe it is a bit reckless. And so it is. While the Bible really does speak in various ways about God's judgment in the world, it's true, the Bible does speak of that, it speaks even more about his reckless love and his generosity. And the people of God have always struggled with this. They've always struggled with the, the apparent recklessness of God's mission in the world. I mean, example, Jonah, great example. Jonah is sent off to Nineveh in Assyria, uh, which is present-day Iraq again, uh, and he's sent there to tell the people to repent because God's gonna deal with them. And when they do, Jonah gets cranky about it. He, he doesn't like that they responded. They're the wrong people to do that. It violates his religious sensibilities. Or think about um, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, the wonderful story of Peter's encounter with the centurion Cornelius and the, the Gentile Christians with all the visions of the, you know, the animals in the sheet and all that stuff. And when Peter is with these Gentile God-fearers, the Holy Spirit falls on them and they start acting just like Peter and his friends did on the day of Pentecost. All those good Jewish apostles and the same exact thing happened to the Gentiles except for one thing. They didn't have to jump through all the hoops. No circumcision, no ritual cleansing, no work of being proselytes. Ah, the Spirit just fell and it scandalized the early church, and it took them years to come to grips with this new ethnic nature of the followers of Jesus. A couple of years ago, one of my students at Fuller Seminary started meeting with me on a, on a monthly basis, and he just wanted to talk about life and ministry. His, uh, he was hoping to take his family to northeastern India, where in fact they are now, uh, to do mission work. He wanted to do some kind of Christian outreach to the Muslim community in India. One way that Andrew decided to prepare himself, and he felt like the Lord led him to do this, was to start making Muslim friends right here in the United States. And so he committed himself to go every Friday to a mosque somewhere and pray with these people. And he assured me, he said, no, I'm praying to Jesus, but you know, there I am, right, right alongside these guys. And so um, we began to talk about this. We talked a lot about it. Andrew continued to pray about this little mission he was taking on. And one Friday, he was invited to the large mosque in Los Angeles. He had been befriended by a, a rather well-known itinerant imam who, who liked Andrew, kind of took him under his wing, invited him to come hear him speak in Los Angeles. And uh, Andrew had told me that as he prayed for these people, he kept saying, Lord, would you really give them dreams and visions about you? Is that, is that even a possibility? Uh, but he prayed it anyway, over and over. Well, he went to the mosque, uh, took off his shoes, uh, went and prayed, but prior to coming to the mosque this time, he, he decided, I wanna make sure my prayer practices are respectful and done right. So he went to a very authoritative source, he went to YouTube, <coughs> like you do, and, uh, and he found a video of the proper prayer postures for Muslim men, and it was a standing posture with arms folded, and he worked it and practiced, practiced it like a dance routine, and got it down pat. And he wanted to be very respectful in this context, and so he did. And um, he said he did look around and realize he was the only one doing it, but he didn't give up, stayed at it, you know, just in case. Well, after the service was over, Andrew went to retrieve his shoes from the place where you put your shoes. And as he was doing that, these two men came up. They were both Turkish immigrants. And they were very interested in Andrew. And they said, Andrew, are you a Muslim? And they had to ask the question because he looks very white and very Irish. 
And he has a classic response to that. And he said, no, I'm a follower of Isa al-Masai, Jesus the Messiah. And they were delighted by that answer. They were intrigued by it. One of them, in fact, sidled up to Andrew and kind of said in a quiet voice, I have a Bible at my house. I've been thinking about looking at it. And uh, they said that they were impressed that Andrew had prayed in the way that he had prayed. We said, we noticed you. You pray in the old school formal way, the way our grandfathers might have prayed. And we were really impressed with your respect for our house of worship. And then one of them said something that just about knocked Andrew over. They call him Brother Andrew. He said, Brother Andrew, just the other night, I had this dream. And he went on to tell Andrew that in this dream, he, he was back in his village in Turkey, and he heard something out in the little street, and he went out, and there, the street was filled with people in worship. And he said the interesting thing about it was not so much that it was just so many people, but he said, Brother Andrew, they all look sort of like you, you know, kind of European. And they were all standing in the formal prayer posture that you were using here today. And he said, Brother Andrew, what do you think that means? Well, Andrew told me this story from his car as he left the mosque. I could hardly understand him. He was crying so hard, he cries a lot actually. Um, he eventually built up a, a friendship with these men, uh, began to open the scriptures to them. Uh, he began to learn that uh, in the Quran, the prophet tells the followers of his followers that they are to value the gospels, meaning the New Testament and the Torah. A lot of Muslims don't know that, but Andrew got real busy to helping, help them see that. And they began to look at the scriptures. One of them came to his home for Thanksgiving dinner, something he'd never experienced before. Uh, I don't know that these guys ever stopped being Muslims. In fact, I'm pretty sure they didn't. But their friendship with Andrew put them on a whole new path of revelation. It was an epiphany to encounter this follower of Isa al-Masai that day. It brought them to an openness to Jesus that they hadn't had before. Well, you know, I've been with Andrew as he's told the story, much better than I've told it tonight. Uh, I invited him to tell it at a gathering that we held at my campus, and folks were generally del delighted and thrilled at the story. There were a few, though, who found it offensive and were annoyed at it, as a matter of fact. For them, it was a story of recklessness that they just did not prefer. But here's the thing. When people, people that folks like us might consider to be outsiders, perhaps in the same way that the early Jewish followers of Jesus would have looked at folks like us as outsiders. When people open the door to Jesus, there's a fairly decent chance that he'll come in. You know, over many hundreds of years, Christianity has taken on a very Western European face. And sometimes it scandalizes us to realize that while Christianity has a, is, is appearing to stagnate and even decline in the West, it's growing and it's flourishing in Africa and Asia and Latin America. There is a light brightly shining in the nations where even 100 years ago that light was barely a flicker. And it's a challenge for people like us to see that our ways of looking at faith might be informed by African, Asian, and Latin theologians who very often see things very differently than do we. But the boundless riches of Christ are not limited to the West or to America. 
And I say thanks be to God. You know, while Christian faith at its heart is about Jesus, it's not about us, this whole mystery thing really is about us, if you think about it. Most of us here today would probably qualify as Gentiles, card-carrying Gentiles, and it's our inclusion in the ranks of God's people that Paul spoke of when he used the term mystery. And, it's our, and our inclusion is not one of status, it's not one of privilege, rather it's one characterized by the astonishment that God's love would be so reckless, that it would be so boundless, so generous, and would seek to include us no matter how far we've been from him. You know, it's an interesting thing to consider. We Gentiles are a scandal when it comes to the people of God. We were from the beginning. And we have no claim on God because of ethnicity, no claim because of religious identity, no claim on God because of ritual conformity. We come to this party by faith. And it's a party that's been in full swing long before we ever showed up. And we find ourselves trusting in the boundless love of God that is supremely and generously poured out to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's a love that is for all the nations. And epiphany is a good word to describe the recognition that God's love is reaching out to people whether they know it or not. I mean, like your, for example, perhaps your East Indian neighbor who might be a nominal Hindu, or to the Vietnamese Buddhist who works just down the hall from where you work, or to that native Californian up, up the street who's embraced the new atheism and likes to tease you about your faith. Somehow, we are called to participate in God's mission to all of the people around us, our nations. And when we do, we are sharing in his reckless, scandalous love. Now, I wanna be clear here. I'm not promoting an all roads lead to heaven kind of universalism sort of thing. But the Bible is clear that God's heart is for the world. And it's his business the way he reveals himself to the nations. Well, we're kind of a nation. And it brings it down to us here tonight. Because God's boundless love has been poured out on us. Even back when we didn't know it. And that's scandal enough for a lifetime, really. It's an epiphany that you could bet your entire life on. We didn't have to climb up a mountain to find it. We didn't have to jump through any hoops to earn it. We didn't have to get things in order so that we would qualify for it. His love has been given lavishly to us. And we've been called to follow Jesus into the world that he does love. And that's our epiphany. That's our good news for today.